Hi, everyone. This is Stuart Gandalf of Healthcare Success and ARIA Agency. I'm here today with Tasia Hack, who's in Global Medical Education Rheumatology at Eli Lilly. We're doing a panel together at this year's iPerforma conference in Philadelphia, along with Lynn Nye. Lynn's going to be actually moderating our discussion at the conference, so I thought it'd be fun to have her join us today's podcast as the moderator. Stuart, I started with Lily uh, quite a number of years ago in Canada. I I was actually in sales uh, when I first started. After six years in sales, I actually joined the Canadian National um, Medical Education Team, so was working with diabetes uh, in the area of diabetes at the time. And um, at the time that I took the medical education role, it was because we implemented a uh, program in sales in which we actually did exactly what you're saying in, in a sense, and on a much smaller scale, of course, which was to we put together physicians with other physicians versus patients. So what we did is uh, we said, okay, there's specialists who obviously know how to start um, patients on insulin. There are a group of physicians who want to learn how to start insulin. They're a little reluctant, but would like to take that next step because we needed to ease that waiting list in the area, the geography that I represented. We needed to ease the waiting list for patients to be able to see an endocrinologist. So we set up this mentorship program, and that's when I moved into the um, medical education team, and we rolled that out nationally because it was successful in a small geographical subset of Canada, but we were able to actually replicate it. Um, And after spending... I would say a couple of years in the Canadian role, uh, role, I moved into the global role, uh, which is where I am now. So I have the privilege of working with multiple countries, uh, so Asia Pacific, Europe, um, obviously North America and South America as well. And um, my role now in the launch teams is all around developing the strategy um, with the medical affairs team and then distilling that into what does the medical objectives and then the global medical education objectives look like, and then bringing our regions um, sort of along with us on that journey of, A, how do you take a global strategy and localize it, and what are the local considerations that we now need to take in, you know, um, into account and maybe tweak that little strategy, and then how do we develop medical objectives out of that, and how do we then develop a tactical plan which we can actually, um, you know, successfully execute. So it's been a lot of fun, and uh, right now the area that I'm in is immunology, and uh, for the last few years really focusing on the rheumatology business. Now my first question to you is, you see, when I started this, I thought, for me, I thought, well, the doctor does know best, actually, in lots of situations, but maybe they have have difficulty keeping up with what's new. Um, But then other people have very different views on this. So I want to ask you that question. What does the doctor know best? And what are some of the things that doctors don't know, um, do you think? It depends, (laughs) would be my answer, right? Yes and no. Um, Certainly, he is the expert that is looked at by physicians or by a patient, sorry, for the medical expertise. But how a patient wants to make that decision varies. We are very much in the era of shared decision-making, and that looks different across cultures and across types of diseases as well. Some patients very much want to know everything. So, doctor, you know what? Tell me all my options and make a recommendation. A second patient may walk in. They generally fall into three buckets. That's your first type of patient. In the era of Dr. Google, they may want to do their own searches and, you know, they want to understand all the options, but they do want to hear what the doctor has to recommend. And then they'll think about it and come back. Then you have a second subset of patients who will say, you know, doc, 
this is really overwhelming, but you're the expert here. Just tell me what, what you think I should do. So there's that group of patients. And then there's a third group of patients who will say, okay, um, you know, you've given me a lot of information, but I need to, on my own, digest this. I need to think about some questions, and I'm going to come back to you. So everybody has their own way of dealing with things. And if you think about life in general, that's where probably within, you know, a little bit of, you know, deviance here or there. But we all kind of fall into these categories, right? So I think the doctor does know best when it comes to the medical expertise, certainly. That's where we rely on them. But what sometimes they get too focused on, and that's like all of us, when we know our area the best, we are very focused in on that piece. Sometimes it's harder to see the bigger picture and recognize that the patient, they're coming to you for this medical perspective, but they have, you know, holistically that patient is dealing with a lot of other things. And so, A, how does that patient like to receive information? Do I know this? If I know this as a physician, guess what? I can tailor my response accordingly. So it's as simple as asking the question, you know, how, how much information do you like to have before you make a decision? And usually when I ask my patients, they say one of three things. And it's usually, you know, uh, one sentence, and I can share this with you in an email if you think it's useful. They say one of these three, three things. You know, which of these describes you best? By doing that in a visit, you've just done a couple of things. You've showed the patient you matter. What, what you say matters to me. I'm listening to you. I want to do this in the way that makes most sense to you. So already you're doing something to bridge that gap. And I think often, you know, we all are, are human beings and we fall into this trap of when we're doing something we know well, we fall into a habit. We do the same thing the first time, the second time, the third time, and the fourth time. But it is, it is very wise to pause and understand where the patient is coming from because then you have less of a discordance. The patient understands that you understand as a physician that you're concerned about their treatment goals, what are their motivations for making a certain treatment, how you like to receive information, and that not only saves a physician time in the course of that one visit, it actually saves them time over time. And it helps the patient to be on the same page because if you look at all the studies that are out there right now, what do they say? They show us that there is a great deal of discordance between patients and physicians when it comes to the understanding of what are their treatment goals and why they do what they do. So there, I think there are very simple practices, which often, not due to anyone's fault, it's just by our habit that we're in, um, you know, can fall off the wayside. And even in the era of shared decision-making, sometimes to some physicians that looks like just asking the patient which option do they think is best. But I think it's a little bit more than that. And and that's um, by, you know, phrasing things a little bit differently. Not only can it save them time, but it can also help to bridge that disconnect very, very quickly. And you started talking about what uh, my next question was, this um, this communication gap, this discordance between um, patients and physicians. So can you describe that a little bit, maybe, and give some examples? I think I can share with you many um, references that, uh, you know, we, we have uh, come across, especially which is why this conversation in motion, you know, how this program came to be, in fact. There are plenty of references and published papers now to show the discordance between patients and physicians. You can ask the patient questions after a certain visit and the physician the same questions, and the physician thinks he's done a great job of explaining options, of explaining the disease, 
and next step. What the patient has heard is something very different. So the physicians will say, well, I said it. Did you hear it kind of thing? Like, did they hear what I said? No, they didn't. Because the minute you told them that they have a chronic disease to which there is no cure, that patient has tuned out. They remember very little after that. So there is some time that's required for digesting, and that's at the initial visit. What happens? Okay, now I know I have a chronic disease. There's no cure. We're on, you know, we're on a treatment path. But often physicians, not often, in fact, the majority of the time, what patients will tell you is, my doctor is focused on the long-term um, effects of this disease. And while I appreciate that, I'm dealing with the short-term, which is today, the pain, the fatigue, or whatever the symptoms may be for that particular disease. And my doctor doesn't seem to care about that. It's not entirely true. The doctor does care. He is worried about the long-term, but his, his sort of thought process is, is that by giving them the appropriate treatment, not only will it help them in the long term, but over time it will take care of the short term symptoms, except it will take a little bit of time. But they don't actually express that. The way it comes across to the patient is, well, he keeps telling me, okay, my x-rays look normal, my MRI looks normal, so I'm not worried about your joints. Let's just say if it was rheumatology, it could be any, any therapeutic area you, you choose and you know substitute the outcomes you're looking for. But often when the patient goes in and says, look, doc, I am in so much pain, I have to wake up two hours early just to get ready in the morning. But the patient, the physician never addresses that directly. What they say is, yeah, okay, I understand. So it's still bad. The pain is bad. But you know what? Here's what we're going to do. Your x-rays, all the results are looking good. Stick to this treatment or I'll make this slight change and you'll see a difference. Come back in six months. Six months is a long time, first of all. So what happens is the patient feels the way they take, what they take away from that visit is, he only cares about my joints. He's worried I don't end up in a wheelchair. I can't even, I'm telling him I can't even get out of bed in the morning, but he never addressed that, right? So that short-term versus long-term fo focus immediately creates discordance. Asking a very simple question, as the minute they walk in and say, you know, we've got 10 minutes for our visit today, what's top of mind for you? If a physician said that to you the minute you walked in, guess what I feel immediately as a patient? This guy cares what I have to say. He wants to, you know, understand what, what I want to, what is top of mind for me today. And you express that, okay? And then the doctor could easily say, great, so I hear you telling me that you're still in a lot of pain. Let's check your joints. Let's do whatever needs to be done. And then always come back to that pain and say, okay, you know what? Let's figure this piece out. But you've addressed it. By not addressing it, the, the patient feels you're, you don't care or you're not interested in treating that symptom. They don't understand what, what is in the doctor's mind, which is, hey, I'm changing this treatment, and I know it will make an impact on both the signs and symptoms today and the long-term outcomes. When you ask the patient's perspective of an HCP's role in, in management of a disease, they say, you know, I wish my physician would tell me what the treatment goals are and how we are working towards them. The doctors are saying, I've done that. I, I, don't, I can't believe that they're telling me that I haven't done that. So what is creating that discordance? When you boil it down, it's simple issues as just addressing it straightforward with them. Because, you know, it's interesting. When you take the top three things that patients are worried about and the top three things that physicians are worried about, they don't match up. So the top things the physician is worried about is at the bottom of the patient's list. And the top three things that the patient is worried about are at the bottom of the physician's list. And when you see it that way, like I'll send you the, the actual, not a graph, but I, I created this infographic because 
you know, we talk about this all the time internally, even when I'm trying to get funds for a particular project and show why this is important. But I created this infographic where I actually had arrows from what the patient's concern and where it actually lands on the physician's, uh, in the physician's mind and vice versa. And when people see that, it's like, oh, my God, this is complete. No wonder we have a, a gap, <laughs> you know, and disconnect, if you will. I think we'd love to see that. And I think one thing that was really uh, very intriguing was, and this makes so much sense to me, is how the patient just stops listening. Because when you get something that's bad news, um, mm-hmm. or when any patient gets bad news and they hear something that's, oh, my gosh, what does this mean? The whole world sort of stops and goes into slow motion, and the retention rate drops to, I don't know, you guys may have the numbers on this, but I'm guessing around 10% tops. And the doctor may be talking very analytically about um, the disease and going through all the checklists, but the patient, we have to recognize the emotional component, and that impacts our brain. So I don't know if you guys have any studies you guys have done on that or you can cite them, but I think that's a really interesting point. Yeah, Stuart, you know, if you ever are interested or have time, I would love to show you the Conversations in Motion program because it is exactly that. We've taken all of those points and distilled them into four modules. Um, and the reason we had we did it that way was to be able to highlight some key things in a very, very, what shall we say, like non, no-nonsense way, talk about what are the communication gaps. I've got, you know, a 10-minute visit. How can I accomplish this in a 10-minute visit? And in that, we actually have the four different types of patient. You know, you'll have the patient who learns of this information and becomes very passive-aggressive, and then one who's that yes patient. So how do you dive deep and find out what's in their mind and get them on that same page? And what are the techniques that are utilized to actually do that? And it's as simple as one sentence in most cases, and it, the effect, however, that it has, and we're just in the process of actually measuring this now to see what, how it you know, can or cannot improve outcomes. But that's exactly what that program tackles. And I can send you, like I said, a few bullets on each of these, but we have the even videos to support what a – so we had a video recorded what a typical interaction between a physician and patient looks like and then what an interaction looks like utilizing the techniques that are in this program and we timed it. And in fact, it took less time when you employ the technique because you're asking a targeted question and the patient is thinking about it and giving you a, a response, but the trust and empathy that it builds along the way actually, you know, is huge. And it's very easy to do, but sometimes it's as simple as we, we you know, it's again the habit, our default. Doctor walks in, he's looking through all the results. Hey, these look really good. You must be in really good shape. And so the patient immediately is like, well, looks like all my test results are good. What's the point in me even speaking up about pain? Half the time, they don't even tell them. 55% of the time, what they came in to say to the patient, to the physician, they won't even address if the physician starts with, hey, your test results look really good. And the majority of the time when the physician proactively asks a patient and says, you know, so tell me, you know, how you've been doing? Studies show that within the first 18 seconds, they're interrupted by the physician. So they've only had 18 seconds to express. And and in fact, over, I think it's 90% of the time, they never come back to that point. So then you can imagine why the patient walks away feeling like, you know what, it's all about what my doctor is. And he they don't feel that they're not doing a good job. They just feel like, you know what, it is what it is. And I just have to live with the rest of the symptomatology. And my doctor doesn't understand. Yep. <laughs> 
Actually, I think it might be because I've been talking with you so much that my questions fit in with your mindset. Because my next question, what you just alluded to, is um, does improving communication improve outcomes? And what evidence is there to, to prove this? So uh, what evidence is there to show that um, it, by improving communication, we can actually improve um, outcomes? Yes. There is definitely a lot of evidence. I'm trying to think of what will come top of mind for me that is the most rele- uh, recent in terms of evidence, but the Strand paper comes uh, to my head right away because what it showed is that if, in fact, the patient feels that the doctor also has their motivation and their treatment goals in mind, that they are much more likely to be A, adherent to their treatment plan, and that doesn't just include medication. Okay, so that's why I call it a treatment plan because people think, oh, it's just uh, adherence to the drug. But what it, these studies have shown is that it end, uh, results in you know more improved outcomes for the patient. So A, from a mindset perspective, they are much more positive, and you know that, that whole uh, self-fulfilling prophecy when we are positive about an outcome, we tend to behave and exhibit those types of um, uh, thoughts and emotions that lead to a positive result. So again, I'll be more than happy to send you this in an email so to make sure I have it accurate. But in fact, uh, I will pull out the top few studies, more recent ones, to show that by employing the type of techniques that get patients to express their, uh, their sort of emotions and thoughts about how they're dealing with the disease, what their specific treatment goals are, what is it that they really want to do. When you ask a patient, you know, let's say you have RA or any chronic disease, say, you know what, what is it really that matters to you at the end of the day? They say things like, you know, I just wish I could put my wedding ring back on. I wish, you know, next week that my son is getting married, I wish I could wear my heels. I wish, I, I hope to be a good role model for my kids because I, right now, you know, my, my son or daughter has a, a, a practice and I can't even go. Other moms can. I can't go to the mall when my daughter wants me to go because, you know, because of all the pain that I'm in. So they just, those are the basics for them. But they, the doctor never asks about these things. And what studies show is that if they ask them what are their motivators and they record them in a chart and then they come back to them at the next visit and say, hey, you know, you mentioned to me last time that you had wanted to wear those heels at the wedding. We gave you those cortisone shots. Did you wear the heels and how was that wedding? Even if the patient expresses for 30 seconds how great they felt, the lasting effects and the neurotransmitters that are released in the brain actually have a very, res- not only restorative effect, but they actually have a very positive um, reinforcement within this patient's mind and how they see the disease, how they see the visit. When asked about the visit at the end, how long do you think your doctor spent with you? They'll say, oh, I think he spent like 25 minutes. When in reality, the doctor likely just spent like 10 or 12 minutes, the same as always. But they see, they feel that it was much more because they ask them about, hey, this was important to you. You mentioned it. Guess what? I heard it. It matters to me too. I wrote it down. I'm checking back in with you. How are you doing towards that? Now let's also focus on the long-term goals, not saying it in that way, but let's also focus on your test results, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, I would say adherence and improved outcomes in their overall, um, how should I say it, in overall, how do I think I can cope with my disease? They answer in a much more positive manner. How do they end up coping with the disease and does it give them more incentive to do more? For example, they will end up trying things like exercise, 
um, like, you know, maybe cutting back on this or that, better sleep hygiene. They're much more open. So your mind actually, what they call is the broaden and build theory, when you your mind will be much more open to ideas and you will be much more likely to be more creative and productive in trying them if you are getting these positive reinforcements. Yeah, but definitely also, there's a lot of data to show this. Yeah, thanks, Cecile. Actually, it was interesting what you were saying because if you look in oncology, for example, there's so many um, uh, studies these days that show that um, that mindfulness and meditation um, mm-hmm. have a positive effect on outcomes, right? Because, because when people are anxious, um, you know, they, they don't want to continue with the therapies for a start. And secondly, um, you know, anxiety really... Um, affects how the drug works, right? Absolutely. In fact, I'm working on a big project right now around wellness. So we are we are developing actually a, a full module on understanding the science of well-being. And there are, in fact, I've just finished all of this research to show how much ev- now. In 2019, there is so much more um, evidence, so scientifically backed evidence around not just exercise, sleep, and nutrition, which we've known for a long time, but mindfulness meditation, random acts of kindness, even expressing gratitude, and um, social connections. You will not believe the amount of evidence behind how much social isolation can be as big, if not more of a threat to longevity and overall um, long-term health um, as smoking or as, you know, as other diseases. It's, it's, amazing what our minds have the ability to to do and not do. So I agree with you. I mean, that's just a whole other area where, you know, we're looking at holistic management now, and I uh, express this idea of wellness, and it's fascinating, um, you know, that in fact, social rejection and isolation, when they do fMRIs of the brain, the same regions light up as physical pain in your brain. So if somebody was beating you up, basically, those same regions of pain that are lighting up in your brain are the same regions that light up for people who are lonely and socially isolated. Like, holy cow, you know? Yes. It's not, so it's not just in your head. It's, it's actually true. And then the impact it has down the road um, in terms of your overall health and longevity, it, it's, just, it's just mind-boggling, really. And, and these are all simple things, but not so simple things, right, in the whole scheme of things. Well, I think that's really important because one of the things that me and Nice said to us is that, um, you know, our, our healthcare system today is really a sick care system. You don't, you go to the doctor um, when you're sick um, and, there's the, and the pendulum is really swinging to a preventive care. In other words, you know, um, a wellness so that you don't get sick. Yes. And that's where our focus needs to be, especially in primary care. Absolutely. No, you're absolutely right, because up until now, it's always been a very uh, disease-based, you know, mentality where, okay, people are not well, how do we get them to neutral? And in the past 10 years, 15 years, the research is going the other way. This whole science of well-being is coming into play because people are saying, okay, just because you're not ill does not mean you are well. So how do we get people north of neutral now? How do we move them from just being 
well, where, you know, or just being okay or neutral or not ill, let's say, to wellness. So now they've studied a whole bunch of that type of population and they've said, okay, what are, what's happening with that population? And why haven't we studied that population? We're always studying the people who have um, illness or mental health issues, but we're not studying the people that don't. And now that they've done that for many years and actually have, you know, produced uh, scientific data behind it, um, you know, those themes are, are the same. Some of the things we've talked about, mindfulness meditation and the effect that it has on your prefrontal cortex, the reduction in anxiety, stress hormones, you know, and even increasing the vagal tone. So there's all kinds of studies now to show, you know, why and how you can actually do it in our daily lives and why, why, why it should be important to you. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I have a, a, yeah. a couple of questions that are stimulated by some of the comments I've just heard. Um, the uh, first question is, uh, going back to the, I thought the social isolation was really compelling to me. What what have, has your research shown, or do you have research yet on how to help people with that? Because clearly the doctor, in many cases I'm assuming, <laughs> you're closer to this than me, looks like that is beyond the scope of what they can help with. Is there any research or any ideas that you guys have for that? Because I could see how that would have a massive impact on overall wellness for almost any disease. What, what, what can you help us with on that? So we have to be careful what we can say in our programs because anytime it comes from a pharma company, it becomes prescriptive and we can't be prescriptive. But I can tell you from my research, there are a number of great programs out there, Stuart. The Cleveland Clinic has one. There's also one called the uh, Wild Five. Um, it's put out by uh, Dr. Rakesh Jain, who, Jain, J-A-I-N, who is a psychiatrist. And his wife is a wonderful lady, Sandra Jain, who is herself um uh, I believe she is a nurse, a PhD, and a psychotherapist. And they put out this wonderful um, workbook called The Wild Five. And what they've done is they've said, okay, we are going to implement this in our clinic. And the reason I come back to that is because they actually have data to show the improved outcomes on these five things, exercise, nutrition, sleep, mindfulness, and social um, connections or social connectedness is, believe, I believe, how they term it. And they actually give some ideas of, okay, what can you do? First of all, with all of their patients, they say to them, okay, first of all, is this important to you? Is it important enough that you're going to stick to this program for 30 days? And if the patient says yes, they say, what are you willing to give up to make it happen? Because every exercise may take five minutes or, or more, but you have to commit. And for those who do commit, it's been unbelievable in the outcomes that in terms of improving their rheumatoid arthritis in this case is what they focused on. The pain associated with rheumatoid arthritis, because again, pain is very subjective. It's in your mind and you can actually, there's things you can do to actually impact what your perception of that pain is. And what they prescribe, and I'll say this in quotation marks in their um, uh, workbook uh, and what I've seen in others is very simple. Every day, give one person a call that you're either you're close to or you haven't been close to, but you haven't touched base with them for a while. So whether it's every day or four times a week, in fact, in most of my studies, this is what they show. They say, you know, either call someone and make sure, make a point of speaking to someone X times a, uh, times a week. Or let's say if you're the type of person, you don't have a, a huge family or a lot of friends or whatever, then make it a point to talk to someone in your day if you're taking the subway, make sure to strike up a conversation. And they actually did these funny studies where people were taking the train and they, first thing in the morning, they said to half the people they met on the platform, okay, whoever you sit beside, I want you to strike up a conversation. And for the other half, they said, don't talk to anybody. 
and they addressed, uh, they, you know, um, looked at their mood uh, before and after, and they used a validated scale. And what they showed is that for the rest of the day, the people who did have a conversation with whoever was sitting beside them, in fact, were much more productive for the rest of the day. They were in much better spirits for the rest of the day, you know, and, and that effect actually lasted for the week, believe it or not, and they made an effort to do it again. So again, that self-fulfilling prophecy, you see again, you want to do more of that behavior. It's about making an effort or a conscious decision to have some sort of a social connection in whatever way fits your life, whether it's giving somebody a call and talking to them. But it's not just about, hey, hey, how are you? I'm done. But also having a really substantive conversation, so what they call high-quality connections, HCQ. Um, and that's really important because for those who have the high-quality connections and meaningful conversations, that effect can actually be multiplied. So it's not to say your conversation with the Starbucks barista is useless because it's not. It will give you some amount of um, enhancement for the rest of the year day. But if you were to have a really meaningful conversation with someone at work or someone you're close to, that effect is, in fact, multiplied fivefold. And that's sort of the cool thing about all this is it's not rocket science. It's not difficult to do, but it requires us putting in that effort to do it. The follow-up question to that would be, have you seen with these kinds of things, because certainly people, and I know people in family and elsewhere with like anxiety and depression, motivation isn't their strong suit oftentimes because it's so mm-hmm. overwhelming. Have you seen anything that uh, to help people to get motivation? Because, you know, that's, I, I love the fact that you asked, they have to buy in first, right? They have to commit. Yep. So what about the people who don't commit? Is there any hope for that based upon what you've seen out there? Yeah, actually, there's a really, really good book by David Burns called uh, Feeling Good. And in this book, he shares how, so he talks about, you know, the cognitive behavioral therapy model that is now established and well utilized. But there are exercises in in there that he actually uh, applied with his patients with, you know, deep depression, anxiety, no motivation, etc. And he employed actually several techniques. And what he was able to show that without even... Um, any medication, that these uh, people, in fact, improved. And it's ridiculous amounts. Like, I, I even almost didn't believe it till I looked up some of these references, 60%, 50% in their mood. So, again, once they see a little bit of a movement in the needle, it actually results in, you know, validating, oh, my gosh, that really helped. Now I need to do this again. Or they take more of an effort to do it. Is it easy? No. If the patient is just not there, and if it's like you know, it's like raising teenagers, right? If you tell them something and they just don't believe it or not willing to go there, no amount of motivation anyone has or you can give them will help. So yes, the patient does need to have a certain mindset of I'm ready now and I'm you know willing to try something because if they're not willing to try anything, then there's very little sometimes that you can do except for you know making sure that you're available and ready to to meet them, you know when they're they're ready to step up. But there are very simple techniques, like, for example, mind chatter. What he says in there is just monitor your mind chatter. You know, we have like 60,000 thoughts a day. And believe it or not, for the majority of the population, 80% of those thoughts are negative. You know, I missed my meeting, God, I'm such an idiot. Why was I, you know, why didn't I leave five minutes earlier? Here I go again. We're putting ourselves down. They say the way that we talk to ourselves, you know, if we talk to other people that way, you wouldn't have any friends. You've heard that quote before. And it's actually very true. So what he says in there is just start recording all your negative mind chatter, for example. Every time you have a thought, replace it with a more, you know, digestible one. 
So you don't have to frame it as, oh, now let's just turn this into a happy, happy thought and I'll be happy. No, it's turned this into a more realistic thought. And he actually gives you some techniques that are so super simple. Um, I actually uh, tried a couple of these and, and it's really, you know, mind boggling that he's, he was able to show in there that it improved outcomes in terms of reducing a patient's depression, anxiety, uh, stress, and improving their mood in terms of the disorders using the DSM uh, questionnaires that he uses um, over time if they were to be consistent with it. But your point well taken, Stuart, that yes, it does require some level of agreement from the patient that yes, I want to try something. I have one final question. If I were to have talk to some of the doctors I work with or hospitals I work with on a daily basis who have a different viewpoint, they would probably ask, this is great. Why is pharma in general interested in patient experience? Like, what are the motivations? Because it's, it's been, this is a new trend even with hospitals. Why do you think there's interest in this topic now, and where do you see it going? I think the, the main motivation for us, uh, you know, in the pharma world is to step up and kind of walk the, walk the talk, if you will. At the end of the day, what is our goal for, for developing new medication? It is about improving patients' life. So if we're truly invested in improving people's health and lives, we have to recognize that it is, goes much beyond just taking a pill, right? It's much more than just a medication. People, we as people are complex individuals. We have a, you know, a holistic life part of which is a treatment plan, but there are many other components of that life. And to show that we as a company are committed to improving the patient's whole self and not just what benefits us, I think it's very important and we have a responsibility to also invest in those types of initiatives that um, help patients improve their lives in all other domains as well, without being prescriptive, of course, but making sure that we have, um, through education and through things that we support, A, we show our commitment to those patients and to our physicians who treat, their, who treat those patients. And we try and provide resources um, that, you know, can help in other domains of their life as well. So for me, personally, I think that's the, the motivator to say, you know, yes, I, I work for this company and I feel privileged to work in an industry where we can, you know, we have um, the opportunity to contribute to, um, you know, whether it's treatment options, but much more holistically than that, contribute to um, creating resources that may help, um, you know, outcomes for patients and help improve their lives in general, whether, whether they have chronic disease or they don't, quite honestly, because I think we all struggle as human beings to say, how can we improve ourselves in some domain or other? And for, from a pharma standpoint, I think it's, it's time to, you know, step up and do much more than just address that one aspect of a patient's life, which is focused around medication. And my experience of Lily is it's a very different pharma company, actually. There are other pharma companies that are talking the talk about um, patient centricity. Do you think it's widespread now? I mean, is everybody doing it? I, you know, I think people are definitely investing much more holistically than in the past. I think in the past it's been very much about, okay, if we're in a particular area, for example, we focus on that one area. I think companies are in different um, phases, if you will, but I think they're all recognizing that it's much more 
than just focusing on a specific area that you're working in. Because one of the biggest, I think, um, criticisms we've heard from our, our physicians is that, you know, you're all over us when you have a drug in that therapeutic area. The minute you don't have anything, you walk away. And then five years down the road, if you have something else, you come back to us and you want us to be all in. We need to see much more of a commitment to that patient and to us, you know, in this in this disease state, if you could, if you want our collaboration, and if you say that you are as committed as you are to pay, improving patient outcomes, because while you walked away for those five years, you know, patients still had that disease. I was still a physician treating those patients. So mm-hmm. while Lily is really trying to focus on what is some of those things in our portfolio look like that can contribute to overall wellness, understanding things like the science of pain, et cetera. I think, you know, we're recognizing definitely that there's um, things we need to do that, and we can do better. So I would say that I think every company is definitely exploring um, that possibility and trying to understand what is the best way that they can go about doing something like that, you know, in a way that is appropriate for pharma. So I agree with you. I think we're all in different phases, but I, I do think that it is top of mind for people um, you know, in, in the majority of the companies, I've seen other types of communication kind of programs in the areas of dermatology, diabetes, certainly. So there's much more of a willingness to, you know, invest, let's say, in these types of initiatives than there was, uh, you know, let's say even 10 years ago or five years ago. So I guess the last question, we're getting close to the hour here, is about how to um, scale this, you know, how to actually get physicians involved in doing this and how to spread the word and get commitment to it. Yeah, and I think this is where we need a better partnership, quite honestly, you know, um, and sometimes it needs to be the physicians driving it a little bit because I think there will always be some amount of skepticism when a pharma company is trying to to, to drive something like this, um, you know, and healthy often in that case because we've proven ourselves in the past to, to live up to that criticism, unfortunately. So... I think we do need some collaborative way where you have patient advocacy groups working hand-in-hand with physician groups and really driving uh, in a much more, you know, unbiased way to say, okay, if we believe in this, then what are the kinds of um, programs that we are willing to have, for example, in our centers to drive this? And we're seeing a lot of those. The Cleveland Clinic is an excellent example of a major institution who puts a lot of focus on wellness. If you look up some of their programs, they're really amazing. Every conference that they have incorporates those practices in the conference. So so they're truly, you know, um, walking the talk now. And so... I don't think it's something any one um, industry can do alone. It does require um, that buy-in, and I think we're seeing more of it now that we have scientific evidence behind some of these strategies. And maybe it's about that peer-to-peer learning, right? So the things that are going well in some of these clinics, it's not just in the U.S. Europe is, um, you know, in the Danish countries and the Scandic countries, they're very, very advanced um, and truly believe in that whole wheel of life and addressing all the different domains, not just the um, the healthcare domains, um, you can see that there's evidence. And, and I think um, maybe bringing some of these learnings to the forefront uh, and maybe pharma having a role, but maybe not uh, leading that effort, because again, it, it, I think that will bring it much more credibility than if it's just pharma bringing it to the forefront. That was lovely to talk with all of you. Thank you so much for your time. Great. Thank Excellent. You. We enjoyed it as well. Thank you.